Hey, Pastor Bobby here. I'm so glad you're joining us to hear what God is sharing with our community here at Chapel. And I pray, I am praying right now for you, that this message will bless you. It'll be an inspiration to you. It will challenge you to be who God has called you to be and to do what God has called you to do. And so as we jump into the message, I pray that you open up your mind to God's word, open up your heart to God's spirit, and watch the two come together to bring a supernatural miracle in your life. So let's jump into what God is speaking to us right now. Amen. So last time I answered like 20 something questions in 40 minutes and I went really fast. These questions are a little bit deeper. And so we're going to only answer a few. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, some of these are hot topics. Some of these are, are things I've wrestled with for many, many years theologically. And so my, my prayer is that if you've wrestled with any of these things, that today you feel freedom to trust God in the middle of the tension and some of the hot topics that you don't leave here mad and blow me up on Facebook because my opinion is not the same as your opinion. Uh, I believe there's lots of opinions, but I believe there's only one opinion that matters and it's not mine. It is God's opinion. And if your opinion varies from God's opinion, somebody has to change. I don't think it's going to be God. And so the goal is we go back to his word, which is the authority. And also we live out his word in grace and in truth. So question number one, everybody say number one. Why should we pray if God is going to answer in his own way and his own timing? And how can we be specific and detailed in our prayers without bossing God around? And so I have a firm belief there's two types of people when it comes to prayer. I believe you have one group of people that believe God's going to do whatever God's going to do anyway. So why pray? Like God's got everything planned out. He's, he's determined everything. So what's the use in praying, which creates a lazy prayer life? And then you have the other group of people that they believe God's not really involved at all. And so they don't pray. They believe God's up in heaven. He's far away. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I, I can't get God. So I just got to take care of things myself and I'll deal with what I got to deal with. And I believe in the middle is the place where we wrestle with prayer. And I believe prayer is a wrestling in Luke chapter 22, it says this. It says, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So there's two wills, not my will, but your will being done as Jesus entered into prayer. And there he, there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I believe here's what happened. I heard Ravi Zacharias say it this way. He's at a debate, I think Harvard or Yale, and this student stood up, you know, and Ravi Zacharias, if you've never listened to him, is one of the smartest human beings on the face of the planet. Like he's super intelligent. You have this college kid who's been to like two courses in college his freshman year, thinks he knows more than Ravi Zacharias. He stands up, he says, if, if God is sovereign and God is king, how big can God be if I pray and he changes everything based on my prayers? And Ravi goes through this whole thing about, he said, when we pray, it's not a matter of God changing. As we pray, the longer we pray, the more we come into what God desires more than what we desire. I would call that this wrestling. Jesus went in. He's praying, God, this is my will. Like, I, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to, I don't want to face this, this punishment. I don't want to face this pain or this agony or this suffering. I don't want to do it, but not my will. Your will be done. And so what happens is God has a plan and either I conform to his plan or I move away from his plan. I believe it is in prayer that we draw closer to knowing what God's plan and will is. I heard one person say, 
They spend the first two hours of prayer just glorifying God and praising God. And they said, how, how do you do that? How do you even get to asking God for what you need? He said, I don't think you know what to ask for until you've at least spent an hour in prayer with God. Meaning, I don't know what God really wants for me until I spend time for him. That, I think that's why our prayer lives are weak, is we go in telling God what we want or what we need instead of trying to determine what God desires for us. And the best story in the Bible about that is King Solomon. King Solomon got basically one wish from God, one prayer answered. So if, if God came to you and said, I'm going to give you one prayer answered, automatically, no matter what you ask for, and it cannot be that Nick Saban never dies. That cannot be the prayer. One prayer, I'm going to answer it automatically, what would it be? Well, Solomon asked for wisdom, not riches, not, not power, not influence, not, he asked for wisdom. And it says, God was so pleased with what he asked for. He said, since you asked for such a noble thing, something that is not to your benefit, but to the benefit of the people you're leading, I'm going to give you wisdom plus the power, the riches and everything else. And here's why I think God moved that way. I believe when you seek out God's will and pray for God's will, God honors that more than you seeking out your will and getting God to try to bless that. I believe it's one of these things where God was so amazed that there's finally somebody who's concerned with what God desires and they ask for that, that God says, you know what, take it all. And I believe that's what set Solomon apart. He sought God's will and then he prayed God's will and God gave him his will and more. And I believe that's the power. But I believe in prayer, that's where that wrestling happens. I believe the longer we wrestle in prayer, the more I let go of what I want and I grab a hold of what God wants. And when I grab a hold of what God wants, it's always more than what I would have asked for to begin with. Plus, the Bible says in James, if you ask not, you'll have not. He actually says you have not because you ask not. Meaning there's things God has for you that you will not receive unless you ask him in prayer for him. Could you imagine when you go to heaven and you start asking God questions and you start asking about this or that or this and he could say, listen, I had all that done for you. I had, I had the healing you needed. I had the, the, the finances you needed. I had the relationships you needed. I had the gifts you needed. You just never asked me for them. That's the power of prayer. I actually saw a meme this week, and it came from more of the Calvinist kind of world. And they said, prayer is not about asking God for anything. Prayer is just about intimacy with God. That sounds great on a meme, but that is a bunch of junk. Every time we see someone in the Bible in prayer, even Jesus, even the Lord's prayer, there was an asking involved with it. And so prayer is this, this intimacy with God, but it's also this, that's the only place you can tap in. I personally, this is one of my definitions of prayer, is I believe prayer is reaching into the spiritual realm and asking for resources from the spiritual realm to come into my physical world. I believe it's where you tap into the spiritual and bring that spiritual power, resources, provision into your physical life, whether that's anointing, whether that's gifts, whether that's revelation, whether that's resources, whether that's relationships, whether that's vision, that I'm reaching into the spiritual realm and I'm asking God for something spiritual to come into my physical realm. How do you be specific? I believe the more you get to know God, the more you can know his will and the more specific you can be in asking him. Dr. Cho, you know, Dr. Cho is the largest church in the world in South Korea, one of the great, great men of God in the world in all of history. 
in his book, The Fourth Dimension, which is a book on prayer, he talks about being specific in prayer. And there's two reasons really for that. The more specific you are in prayer, the less likely you are to think it's a coincidence when God answers your prayer. I mean, he tells a story, he's like, I need a bicycle. And he's sharing the gospel in China, in the underground church in China, sharing the gospel, uh, or this is uh, in, in Korea, sorry, in Korea, sharing the gospel. He says, I just need a bicycle so I can share the gospel more. He begins asking God for a bicycle. Time goes on, he doesn't see the bicycle. He asks God for the bicycle and this desk. Ask him a couple months goes by, still doesn't have it. Finally, he feels like God told him, he said, what kind of bicycle do you want? What kind of desk do you need? And Dr. Cho started looking, he said, well, there's this American bicycle, I want this American bicycle that's red. And this desk, I want this type of desk, mahogany, whatever type of wood it may be, da 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 So then he goes and preaches one Sunday, comes back, and there's a red bicycle, American bicycle, just like he prayed for. A couple days later, he comes home and somebody ordered him a desk. They said, we know you need a desk to study the word and write these books. And, and, and here's a desk. And it was exactly the desk he prayed for. So what that does, one, it tells you it's not a coincidence. God heard you and God answered your prayer. Number two, it lets other people see that if you pray specifically, it's not somebody else answering your prayer. It's God answering your prayer. And I believe there's one thing we need in our prayer life more. It's more specific prayer. In church world, when we pray at, over our, our Newburn's dinner at, at Newburn's, if you pray at Bunyan's, if you pray in church, have you noticed how it seems like most of our prayers are the exact same thing and same words every single time? And what happens is our prayer lives get stale when our relationship with God gets stale. Our relationship with God gets stale when we no longer believe in the power of prayer or the need of prayer. And I believe what God is asking for is asking us. I, I believe in, in our free will, we have to invite God into our free will. And I believe it's in prayer that we do so and we invite him in and we sp get specific about our prayers and it knocks out all the coincidences of life. It knocks out all the coincidences of, of that could have been somebody else, that could have been me. Now, when you pray specifically, you know without a doubt that was God and God only. Um, second question, <laughs> just a little deep step into the deep water. Is the future predetermined or are our decisions determined or, or do our decisions determine and change the future? And how does God's sovereignty and our free will work together? So God is sovereign. God is a king. God knows what's going to happen. God can do whatever God wants to do. But I'm also a person. I have free will. How do those two things coincide together? How does a sovereign God and a human who has free will, how do those work out? So a couple of scriptures just to kind of let you see how sovereign God is. It's Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. It says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Everybody say there's none like God. There is nobody like God. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Meaning he's, he is saying what's going to happen at the beginning and the end and everything in between. From ancient times, things not even done yet, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. So there is a plan of God. There is, God is predetermining some things that happen. We know that from reading Genesis all the way to Revelation, God has a plan that is unfolding. But on the other side, so that is true. 
On the other side, Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life. Everybody say life. And death, say death. Blessing, say blessing. And curse, say curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. So God says, I have a plan, but also here's two choices in front of you. Pick the best choice. Therefore, if you choose cursing, you can't blame God that your life is messed up. If you choose death, you can't blame God that your life is messed up. But if you choose blessing, you can praise God for your life being blessed. Norman Geisler says it this way. He says, the facts of freedom is God's responsibility. Meaning, I mean, God gives us freedom. That, that's a fact. But the acts of freedom is our responsibility. So meaning God, God has a plan, but he gives us freedom within that plan. But then we have the responsibility for all we do inside of God's plan. So I've wrestled with this for years and years and years. Almost every major uh, author I've had a chance to be around or speaker or preacher, I've asked the same question. You know, how does God's sovereignty and our free will, how does that kind of correlate? And so here's what I've learned. Everybody say this word. It's called antinomy. I always mess it up because y'all made fun of me for saying antenna when it's antenna. Antinomy. And I'm going to spell it for you. And it's not in your dictionary. That's how awesome this word is. Antinomy. So what it means is there's two parallel principles that go in the same direction but will never intersect together. So what that means is they look like complete opposites, but yet when they're together, but when they're separate, they look like they're both completely true. So you could say God's sovereignty it's completely true. When you read the Bible from beginning in, you see that God is a king that's in control of what's happening around him. It says he has the heart of the king in his hand. God has a plan that's unfolding. This is why we believe in prayer. This is why we believe in prophecy. This is why we believe in the gifts of the spirit. This is why we believe in the Bible is that God is sovereign and God is working something out. That is true. If you read scripture, you'll see that thread all the way through the Bible. But the other thing is free will. If you read the Bible, you'll see verses like Deuteronomy chapter 30 where there is responsibility on us. That if you do this, then this will happen. If you don't do this, then this will happen. That looks true, but when you put the two together, it's like how in the world could these two things be true? How can God be sovereign and man be free? That seems like man has more control over what happens than God does. And here's, here's the place I've come. Most people that are high on God's sovereignty are Calvinist. And what I believe it does, it creates a lazy Christian who no longer pursues God and they just put it all in God's, all, everything's in God's responsibility. Meaning evil, well, God is sovereign, that must be in God's camp. And they'll say, well, I, I don't believe God is evil, but when you start giving God responsibility for everything, that's where you end up at. And also, you no longer pray, you no longer do evangelism, you no longer follow all the commands because he says, if, you know what, if God wants me to be saved, then I'll be saved. If God wanted me to do it, I would do it. Then you have the free will side, which is the, the very loose uh, legalistic side of things, where if you do this, God will bless you. If you do this, God will bless you. If you don't do this, God's going to curse you. Then it creates this, it's all about what you do rather than who God is. 
And so these two, it's very rare to find a balance between the two. Most people in church world, when it comes, when you find these things, you see these, these antinomies with grace and truth. You see it with the word and the spirit. You see it with, with all types of things. The Bible is full of these things that are true by themselves, but when you put them together, they're complicated. I believe God calls us to embrace the tension between the two and trust him with both. And what that means is you don't have to pick, is God sovereign or am I free? You get to embrace both and trust God with what he's sovereign over and be responsible for what you do with his sovereignty. Here's, the, here's what I add to this. And it comes back to prayer. That I believe we start in our own free will. But salvation is when God intervenes in our free will. God shows us, reveals to us his son, Jesus. He, he shows up in our lives as a sovereign king. And as we trust him, salvation is when we start trusting more in the sovereign king than our free will and our choices. Does that make sense? The more I trust God more than my choices, the better choices I will make. The more I trust his sovereignty, the more I'm submitted to his lordship. The more I'm submitted to his lordship, the better decisions and actions I will fulfill. What happens is I believe our life is this battle and tension of trusting God's sovereignty back into our free, sovereignty and free will. I believe God wants us to place our free will in his sovereignty. That's what lordship is. The more I trust God, the more I'm submitted to him, the less concern I have about my free will and decisions because my hands are in the palm of a sovereign king. And when we learn that my salvation is a miracle of these two coming together, that, that, that is salvation, is when God's lordship, his sovereignty is interacting with your free will, that God, the only thing, and I told this guy, he had a, he had a ministerial failure, and they were trying to restore him, and, and he wasn't quite repentant yet, and I said, do you realize the only thing God will not do is intervene in the free will of those people he loves. Like, like, do you get the, if, and so the, the high Calvinism, they, they expect God to come into your free will and just make you believe. That's not love. Like the, the whole concept of God is this freedom. And because freedom comes with love, without freedom, there is no true love. Could you imagine me just, my kids having to love me? I wake them up every morning at 4 a.m. Hey, you better tell me you love me this morning. You better tell me I'm the best dad in the world. That's not love. But when I'm sitting on the couch after coming home and the kids come outside from playing, and they come up to the couch and say, Dad, I love you. That is love. And love only exists within the confines of freedom, which means, which means that there's the opportunity for there not to be love. And God was willing to take that chance with us. That he's going to create us with freedom to love him, but also with the freedom to despise him, reject him, and not love him. That, that is the depth of who God is and the difference between us and God. Next question, which kind of goes along with it. If all good things come from God and he knows all, why did he create Lucifer and put the tree of knowledge in the garden? And since God created Satan, does that mean God created in all evil things and suffering and sickness? Um, 
there's three views on evil. So what this is, is why is there evil? Did God create evil? Kind of going back to this question here. There's three views on evil. Pantheism, which means believes that they believe in affirm God and deny evil, which means we believe in good. We just don't believe in evil. And so there's a lot of religions that deal with that. Everything's good. There's no such thing as evil. Then you have atheism, which, which believes and affirms evil, but denies God. Then you have theism, which we're theists. We believe and affirm good and evil. But the problem is we have a really bad definition of evil. We look at good and evil as these polar opposite. You know, we've watched too many uh, sci-fi movies and, and cartoons that has good versus evil. The good guy fighting the evil guy. The evil guy fighting the good guy. So we have this belief in us that good and evil are opponents, but they're equals. Like, and if you look that way and you read the Bible, you feel like God is fighting the devil, the devil is fighting God, and hopefully God wins. And maybe at the end of the story, God wins. But that's a very bad definition of evil. Evil is, is more, is less real and less tangible than we realize. And what that means is God created everything good. Everything was created good. And so you say, well, how would Lucifer sin then? Or why did he rebel in heaven? Well, anything that's evil is just not good. And so what that means is you can have evil by choosing a lesser good than what is available to you. So what that means is if, if I'm in heaven and I'm Lucifer and I have the ability to worship God 24-7, serve him and love him and honor him, and I choose something that's less than what is available to me, that is evil compared to what I have access to. And so anytime that could be, Evil could be, if I have access to my wife, I can love my wife, but I choose to have an emotional affair. That's evil, even though I haven't done anything yet because I'm choosing a lesser good. And so my definition of evil is this, is God did not create good and evil. God created everything good. Everybody say it was all good. All of it. Heaven, the Garden of Eden, Eden everything was good. Evil is not a polar opposite. Evil is the corruption of something that is already good. So it's not real. It's not tangible. What it is is the enemy can't create something else. He can just try to take away what God has already created. So what that means is if I have a wound in my arm, that wound is not real. Like, like it's not an actual thing. What it is, it's, it's the corruption of something that's already good. My arm was good. My arm was strong but now there's something that's missing from it or it's been hurt or harmed. In the same way, you could say if you put an old car out in the, the cotton field, it's a brand new car, over time, it's going to begin to rust. What is rust? It's not the opposite of, of steel. It's not the opposite of clean. It's not the opposite of pure. Rust is the corrosion of something that's already good. Rust is not even a real tangible thing. It's the corruption or corrosion of something that's good. In the same way, evil is not this opposite force that's trying to dominate or take over. It's this corrosion of everything that God created that was already good. In the garden, it was corrosion of the perfect intimacy and communion that Adam and Eve had with God. In life, it's the corrosion of the blessings God has in store for us. It's the corrosion of pure love. It's the corrosion of life. It's the corrosion of our view or perspective of God. And so evil is this corrosion that happens in our lives. Next question. Can you be born gay and can you be born the wrong sex? Well, let's just make everybody in the room hate me at one time. Um, I actually believe... 
contrary to most, uh, a lot of the, the pastors I know, actually believe you can be born gay. And I need to clarify what that means. I believe everyone is born sinful. I believe every, most people are born with certain propensities for certain sins. You can call that generational curses. You can call that whatever. Like my family, like everyone in my family was an addict. My, my propensity was to be an addict. Uh, promiscuity ran through my family. I have the, the propensity for promiscuity in my bloodline. And so sin, we're born into sin. A couple of scriptures on it. Psalms 51, 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Meaning he, he was born sinful. We call that total depravity in theological terms. Psalms 58, 3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. So we call that the nature side. You are born with a sinful nature. Now the problem is when we start trying to use that sinful nature to justify what sin we're born into. So the reason I'm okay with saying, I believe when somebody says, well, you know what, I'm gay and I was born this way. I agree. And what it does, it gives us a great starting place to have a really good conversation. And I'm like, you know what, I was born angry. I was born addicted. I was born this way. Some people are born with with all types of different sins that are part of their life, part of their, their nature. I believe you. I, I, I'm okay with that conversation. But here's what the conversation Jesus had with a Pharisee in John chapter three. He said, unless you be born again. Now, why would he ask or say you have to be born again? Because you are born into sin. And since you're born into sin, you're born with bad parents, bad DNA, bad genetics. You're born into sinfulness. Therefore, Jesus said to fix the problem, it's not just making a decision. You have to be born again. That doesn't matter if you're gay. That doesn't matter if you're addicted. That doesn't matter what your sin is. You still have to be born again. So your excuse is invalid to me. Well, I was born this way. Good. You have to be born again. So it makes the conversation easy. So that's one. Yes, I believe that because we're all born with a sinful nature. The other side of homosexuality is it's a nature problem, but it's also a nurturing problem. What that means is not only are you born into sin, maybe you were born gay, but there's also a lot of things that happen in life that lead people to a lifestyle of homosexuality. And if you notice, it's growing at an amazing rate. At least it looks like it's growing at a tremendous rate in our culture. Why would that be? Are more people being born that way? Or are they being nurtured that way? There's some statistics that, that, that looked at heterosexual men and homosexual men. And the heterosexual men had experienced um, abuse at a rate of about 12%. That abuse was sexual abuse is what they were referring to. So heterosexual men had experienced at 12%. Homosexual men had experienced it at 46% from other men as a child. And so what had happened was they were nurtured into that lifestyle by abuse. And one of my problems with the church as a whole is we combat homosexuality from the wrong standpoint. We attack people who have been beaten and abused and betrayed by fathers or lack of fathers who have pushed them towards a lifestyle where they find acceptance for the first time in their lives. Or they can appease their guilt or their shame from abuse by making it feel okay by being in a lifestyle with someone that was like the person who abused them. And so instead of looking at the pain of the person, we look at the, the, the symptoms of the person. 
That's one side. Another side of that is identity issues. And I believe in the, in the gender issue, I believe the transgender movement is more sexist than the traditional view of gender, uh, gender identity. And why that is, is I see a lot of guys who are not the, the macho man Randy Savage. They're not the, the strong redneck. They're not the construction working guy. They're what other people would call soft. They don't sound like a man. They, they, they like, as RJ said, my dad likes to hunt for shoes instead of deer. Like they like shoes or fashion, whatever it may be. Here's what happens. Our culture now tells them they're soft, quit acting gay. And what they've just done is they say there's an identity that belongs to this gender. There's a box you belong in. For men, I believe what makes you a godly man is taking responsibility for your actions, for your wife, and for your kids. Doesn't matter what, what you do for a living. Doesn't matter what kind of style clothes you wear. If you wear skinny jeans, more power to you. If you wear cowboy boots, more power to you. When, when Paul told the church, act like men, he was referring to taking responsibility for the home, responsibility for themselves, and responsibility at the church. The other side, girls that, that are tom, we used to call them tomboys. Now we have derogatory terms for them, but here's what the transgender movement says. If you feel like you don't fit in the box, just move to the other box. I'm saying God doesn't have a box. He says you're male or female. Here's the responsibilities for both sides. And what happens is we force people by speaking prophecy over them. Listen, prophecy over young people when they don't fit our role. We start saying things and speaking things into their life that should not be spoken to. And in doing so, we're speaking towards the trajectory of their future rather than the purpose and potential God has placed inside of them. So do I believe people can be born gay? Yes, but I also believe they're nurtured and our culture is discipling people to be gay. You can look at the rate of broken families and the rate of homosexuality in America and they're almost exactly the same rate. Why is that? Tenfold, the stats show us that people who choose a homosexual lifestyle ascribe their parents, especially the fathers, being absent, rejecting, or less loving than they thought they should be. And I, I've sat with one, one guy, even there at our church, and he dealt with homosexuality. And as we talked, it, God just gave me this word for him. He never had a dad in his life. He always had different stepdads coming in and out of his life. I said, do you realize you're, you're choosing a homosexual lifestyle because all you're looking for is the love of a father figure or a man in your life? Do you see how sick the enemy is? That he broke down the family and now he's, he's, people are dying and desperate looking for a father figure in their life and they can't find it. So they run to the closest thing that will give them, it seems like approval, acceptance, unconditional love and affection. That tells me the world is discipling people into a lifestyle because Mommy and daddy aren't discipling their kids at all. Which means instead of protesting or trying to think your vote's going to solve the problem, start in your household, start in the kids' ministry, start in the youth ministry by creating environments where people can have real unconditional love and acceptance that they're looking for in life.
The other side of that is, well, well, people ask, well, well, is homosexuality different than any other sin? Sin is a sin and it all separates us from God. But here's the difference. There's a difference between struggling with sin, meaning I don't, as Paul said, I don't want to do this, but I, I fail and I'm, I'm trying to not do this. I, I'm trying hard. I'm pushing. I'm fighting against this. And there's a, a difference between that and saying, this is who I am. You cannot be a hyphenated Christian. What that means is I can't be an alcoholic Christian. I can't be a greedy Christian. I can't be a a, a stealing Christian. I can't be a murdering Christian. I can't be a homosexual Christian. Because if you identify yourself by your sin, that is the opposite of salvation. And so the two will never coincide together. Once you embrace your sin... Once you say, you know what, I'm not going to struggle with this anymore. I'm going to embrace it. You have now rebelled against God and you're, whatever the term may be, you're not saved. You can't, you can't say I'm going to join the enemy of God, but still want God's love. It does not work that way. Next question, when helping others, at what point do you stop to protect yourself or your family? It's a great question on boundaries. So what that means is if I keep helping everybody else and I'm hurting myself or I'm hurting my family, where do I stop? And the reason most people ask this question is because once you stop, people start telling you, you don't love me anymore. You're not a Christian because you won't do this. You won't do that. And what that is, you are connected to a manipulator and an abuser. The first thing, if you ever fly, I fly all the time. When you fly, the, if you pay attention, the flight attendant is going to tell you, if we lose cabin pressure, these oxygen, oxygen masks are going to fall from the, the top of the ceiling, wherever it comes from. Don't panic. First of all, the first thing you're going to do is panic. Like if, they, if those things come out, I promise you, I'm panicking. And they'll tell you, before you try to place the mask on your child's light, on your child's face, or someone around you and help somebody else, put it on your face first. Why? You can't help anybody else if you're passed out or you're dead. In the same way, if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of other people. If you read scripture, Jesus didn't heal everybody. This has been a new revelation to me. There's been the, the man at the pool of Bethesda. There was tons of, of lame people and sick people there. He only healed one. And we're trained to think that we're supposed to help everybody. There's certain people you can't help. When he sent the disciples out, Jesus said, go, and if they don't receive your ministry, leave, dust off your feet, and go to the next place. What that looks like to me, and I I practice this, a couple things that I do. If I'm investing in someone because they asked for me to invest in them, as soon as they stop taking my advice, I'm done. Because why would I invest more in you then you're investing in yourself. Now, what it means is I'm still there for you. If you need me, you can call me, but I'm not going to go out of my way and sacrifice time for my family or sacrifice time from things I'm called to do because you want someone to appease your discomfort. And most people that want help, they want you just to appease their discomfort. They don't want a solution. They, they don't want help. They don't want answers. They just want you to make them feel better as they keep doing the same things they've been doing. And so you have to come up with boundaries that are good for you. Um, the big question, is the pro-life or the pro-choice more in line with God's will and ways? So, <laughs> just go ahead and make everybody mad. 
So again, I believe, one, politics is very low on my totem pole of things that God is concerned with. What that means is I believe we don't, we're not citizens of America, we're citizens of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is what God is trying to advance. He's not trying to advance the United States. And this neo-Zionism that we have in America, we, be like, we believe America is the new Israel. God has blessed America tremendously, which has helped the church advance, but God is more about his church advancing and his kingdom advancing than more than just America advancing. So I believe politics falls kind of low on the totem pole. The other side of that is, I believe God gives us the opportunity to stand for things politically that affect the kingdom of God. And what that means is, I believe you have a responsibility to advance the kingdom of God any which way you can. That means if it's in politics, do it. If that's in your job, do it. If that's at school, do it. Your calling is to advance the kingdom of God. People say, there's, well, there's a separation between church and state. There is. That means the state can't come into the church, but the church can go into the state. And I believe we are called to advance God's purposes any which way we can. But the other side of that is, I'm a very pro-life person. What that means is I'm pro-life from conception all the way to death. I'm not voting for uh, assisted suicide. I'm not voting for anything that affects life in the pursuit of happiness at all. I am here to protect life so people have an opportunity to experience God and go to heaven. That is my goal. What that looks like scripturally is throughout scripture, it shows us that life begins at conception. Leviticus, life is in the blood. Jeremiah, I knew you in your mother's womb. Psalms 139, he formed us in the darkness of the womb. Even Jesus, the first person to recognize Jesus as Messiah was a baby in the womb that was John the Baptist. We know that. The law knows that. The law knows that if you, if you go out and get drunk, you have a car wreck and you kill a pregnant mom with, that has a baby in her womb. You're getting charged with two murders. Why? Because the law recognizes that as life. Science has now caught up and recognized that we now do in utero surgeries on babies. We now know that, that the heartbeat is very early on. We now know there's separate DNA between a baby and a mother between six to 10 weeks old. We know that babies experience pain from six weeks to 12 weeks. So we know at 10 to 12 weeks, that baby is a functional baby. We know babies that are born between 16 and 20 weeks that survive outside the womb. We know these things. Therefore, I believe we have an obligation to protect life that cannot speak for itself. Just like we have, a, I think we should speak up for refugees. I think we should speak up for foster kids and people in foster systems. I believe we should speak up for civil rights. I believe there's lots of things we should do. But the other side is we should not use the protection of life as an opportunity to abuse people who've already been abused before. What that means is we get so caught up in the pro-life argument and debate, we overlook the people that they minister to the most, which are young women who are in places that find themselves with no answers or solutions or hope. They find themselves in a situation where they don't know which way to turn, and we lose compassion. So I would say it this way. If you're pro-life, don't save a life at the risk of compassion for existing life. Does that make sense? Don't save a life at the risk of compassion. But if you're pro-choice, I would tell you to pray about it. Don't just do what your family's political parties told you to do for centuries. 
do not risk life at the sake of compassion. That's the two arguments I see going on. I see conservatives risking compassion for the sake of life, and I see, I see liberals or Democrats risking life for the sake of compassion. This is why I love supporting places like Shoal Save a Life that does both. They protect life in the womb and they minister to moms who find themselves in that situation even after the baby is born. They help with adoption, they help with foster care, they help with all these different things. And I would tell you, you need to pray about if Jesus was here, where would he be? I would say he'd be protecting life in the womb, but he'd also be ministering to the mom who just had an abortion. And if you're not doing both, you need to check yourself and figure that out. Because here's, here's a situation I find myself in as a pastor that most people who are pro-life never find themselves in. Until you've ministered to a mom or a dad who had an abortion 20 years ago and their life has been spiraling out of control due to guilt, shame, and regret for 20 years, do not, do not push something that has temporary results that you can see, that has long-term results you cannot see. I'm telling you, I deal with people all the time when their life is out of control, sexual promiscuity, financial issues, addiction, and you trace it back, it was back to when they were 17 or 18 years old and they had an abortion because they didn't know which way to turn. We should not be pushing something that causes harm to everyone involved. We should be promoting something that produces life for everyone involved. And last question. How can I know God's will and be confident that I'm walking in it? So Dr. Kendall, one of my mentors, he uses this great acrostic. It's called PEACE. P-E-A-C-E. Everybody say peace. Peace. Five things you need to look for if you're trying to figure out if, if an opportunity is God's will for you or if you're in God's will or if you're not in God's will. Peace. Is it providential? Providential means, did you have to push the door open? Did you have to knock the door open? Did you have to manipulate your way in? Or did God open the door for you? If God opened the door for you, that's a good step. E is for enemy. So P is providential, E is for enemy. Why is that there? Because most of us have a greater discernment to know what the enemy would want us to do more than what God would want us to do. So what would the enemy want you to do in this specific situation or circumstance? So if you can figure that out, do the opposite of what you just figured out. C is confident. How confident are you in this decision or this direction you're walking? Are you you a little timid or are you full of faith as you step into whatever that may be? Are you confident? So P, providential. E, the enemy. C, confident. C or A, I'm sorry, A is authority. I can't spell. A is authority. What does God's word say about this direction or this situation or this decision? What is spiritual authority? Somebody who has authority in your life, your mother, your father, pastor, a leader. What do they have to say? What does God's word have to say about that? C is confidence. And then E is ease. Is your heart at rest? Because God will never make you move outside of yourself. He'll stretch you. He'll never get you to change who you are in order to walk in the direction he's called you to walk in. So if all five of those are there, you can be confident you're in God's will. If only four are there, don't do anything. If only three are there, don't do anything. You need all five to be confident you're in God's will. So if you would bow your heads and close your eyes just for a second. I just want to ask a couple of questions this morning. And the first question is this. If, 
and I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna have anybody stand up. I'm just gonna have you just slip your hand up just real quick so I can see you, so I can be praying for you, not just today, but throughout the week. If you say, you know what, I'm, I either deal with homosexuality, I have same-sex attraction, um, and I'm tired of dealing with it. I've used being born like this, so I've, been, I've used being abused as an excuse to continue in my sin. Or I have a family member who, who deals with that, and I, I want to pray, one, if, I, if I'm in that lifestyle or in that world, that, that God will show me who I truly am in Him. God will give me the strength to move beyond my sin and temptation. And if it's a family member, that God will give you the right truth and right grace to minister to them at their point of pain and abuse and need to see them become who God wants them to be. So that's you. Every head is bowed, every head is closed. That's you. Just slip your hand up real quick. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are a God of purpose and a God of identity. And Father, we know that every single sin is a sin of broken identity. And Father, we know with homosexuality, uh, there's so many people caught up in and, and abuse and identity issues and seeking acceptance and seeking love. And Father, I pray right now for all those in this room that either deal with that or have family or friends that deal with it. I pray that you let them see the pain. You let them see the bondage. You let them see the, the frustration. But Father, also let them see the, the results of an identity that's found in Christ. An identity that's pure. An identity that's strong. An identity that comes with full acceptance and unconditional love. Father, help them break the ties of, of, of sexuality and let them find peace and communion with you and let them discover who they are in your son, Jesus. Second question. You know, we were talking about pro-life and pro-choice. And there's going to be two groups of people in this question. You said, you know what? I'm pro-life, but I haven't been very pro-compassion. And I realize I need to be more compassionate towards those who don't agree with me. I need to be more compassionate towards those who deal with the actual ramifications of, of abortion. And I need God to soften my heart towards them. If that's you, I just want you to slip your hand up real quick right where you are. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Same question. Maybe you're on the pro-choice side. And you say, you know what, I've looked at this as a women's rights issue. I've looked at this as a, as a freedom issue. I looked at this as a, the government should not be involved in these type of decisions issue rather than looking at it from God's point of view, rather than looking at this as the opportunity for God's destinies and God's people to be birthed in freedom and in liberty. And today is a day you just want to, you say, you know what, I'm going to start praying and reading and discovering what God wants from my opinion rather than what my opinion may be. If that's you, just slip your hand up right where you are real quick. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Father, we love you. And we thank you that you are the author of life. Father, you're the author of life in the womb. You're the author of life here on earth. And you're the author of life in heaven. And Father, I just pray that as we as a people can protect life at all cost. Protect it with truth. Protect it with compassion. And protect it with grace. And Father, I pray for as us as a people that we do not attack each other, but we embrace your opinion and carry your opinion to the people that it matters the most. And so, Father, I just pray for uh, just a sovereign move of God in the lives of the people in this room, that, Father, compassion can rise up, that, Father, we can quit being political and start being kingdom-minded, and that, Father, as we're kingdom-minded, we can carry your love, we can carry your presence, we can carry your truth in every place that you take us. Father, for those that, that deal with the opinion, I just pray that, Father, as they read your word and as they pray, that you soften their heart, you open up their eyes to what you desire, 
and what you want and what advances your purpose here on earth. And so, Father, we thank you for it. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us to worship together, to gather together, and to celebrate together. And we just pray that you have your way in and through us as we leave. Send us out as missionaries and let us accomplish your purposes here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.